0: Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Good evening. All right, let's jump in Ezekiel chapter twenty-three. This is where Todd was going to cover half and come up short. Remember that if you ever want to go out to eat supper with him, and I got half of it, Brian, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. But this chapter twenty-three is really a, a parable concerning uh, two women. You know, one to be Ahola, a and one is Aholaba. Verse 4 is very clear on who these two women represent. Verse 4 says Ahola is Samaria, and Aholaba is Jerusalem. So you, we do have to remember this is the, the divided kingdom, what we have here. We have the northern kingdom, which Jeroboam had pulled away and established. He had set up his own priest. He had set up his own temple. He had set up his own gods, his own altar, And God had judged Samaria. God had judged the northern kingdom. And we have Judah, which will be represented here as a holobah. They had the correct lineage, being the priesthood of Aaron. They had the the Davidic king, but the priests were ungodly. The temple was defiled. The king was wicked. And they served many gods. Did they really think God would just turn a blind eye? You know, today, you may get away with a crime that others who may not have the influence or financial draw may have to suffer for the consequences of their actions, and you may get away with it, but that's because we do, uh, not not necessarily by default, we may have a 2 tiered justice system. You know, maybe because we're dealing with fallen judges and fallen men. But not so with the Lord. A two-tiered justice system is an impossibility with the nature of a perfect, righteous, and holy God. So that's the reason, ding, 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 if you can remember, that's the reason God sent His Son to pay for the sins of all those who would believe because sin must be paid for. God doesn't operate on a two-tiered justice system. Okay, so but here it seemed like they believed, they, they believed they could commit the the sins, the exact same sins that their sister committed and get away with it. They would escape judgment somehow. Again, they had the temple. But who cares if the priest were ungodly? The Davidic king, but who cares if he's wicked? You know, you think about this now just in, in our worship, in our lives, you know, a lot of times we do seem to put too much trust. In, in ancillary objects, you know, whether it be the, a translation we read, and that makes us more holy than the rest, or, or possibly our lineage, or, or we could even go from the, the spiritual side of things to the political side of things, how they put their hope in the fact that they had a Davidic king, although the fact he was wicked, as long as we got the right party in, in office in the White House, we feel like we're somehow fulfilling the Great Commission. But again, the northern kingdom was judged for their sins, and they had that as a glaring, recent, fresh example. And now Judah, it says in verse 31, has gone the way of her sister. Actually, if you look up in verse 11, it gets a little stronger. Verse 11 says, her sister, Ahalba, being Judah, Jerusalem, saw this, and she became more corrupt than her sister, in her lust and in her whorings, which she was worse than that of her sister. So she had taken it a step further. So do they really expect God to just grin and bear it? If so, they are gravely mistaken. And in this particular passage, we're going to have four judgments or four indictments kind of levied against the people of Jerusalem. They're... they're, they kind of set apart by the the phrase we see in verse 22. Therefore, O Aholabah, thus says the Lord God. We'll see that in verse 22, in verse 28, in verse 35, in verse 46. 22, 28, 35, 46. And that's kind of markers we have here of these charges being laid or these judgments coming on the people of Jerusalem. Now, if you look in verse 6, this is, this is Samaria. It says that Ahola here lusted after warriors, clothed in purple, governors and commanders, all of them desirable young men, horsemen riding on horses. Look in verse 12, we see, we see Jerusalem or Ahola by there. She lusted after the Assyrians, governors and commanders, warriors, clothed in full armor, horsemen riding on horses, all of them desirable young men. Almost a mirror image of what Samaria was guilty of. And judgment, by the way, is going to come in the form of verse 23 we read here. Assyrians, with them, desirable young men, governors and commanders, all of them officers and men of renown, all of them riding on horses. Daniel Block says, quote, Those who had previously come to make love now come to make war, End quote. It does kind of stir some, some thoughts of sometimes it is our vices, sometimes it's our sin and our lust. Those are the very things that destroy us. That's what we see here. You can see that. That's, a, that's the case that we run into with people who have an addiction to drugs or uh, drinking or those things. It's just, they just can't pull back and it just, it's a self-destruction just as they're just plunged deeper and deeper into it. But let's read this first section. We'll kind of run through it. Verse 22. Therefore, O Aholabah, thus says the Lord God... Behold, I will stir up against you your lovers from whom you've turned in disgust, and I will bring them against you from every side, the Babylonians and all the Chaldeans, Picad and Shoah, Koah, and all the Assyrians with them, desirable young men, governors and commanders, all of them officers and men of renown, all of them riding on horses. And they shall come against you from the north with chariots and wagons and a host of people, They shall set themselves against you on every side with buckler, shield, and helmet, and I will commit the judgment to them, and they shall judge you according to their judgments. And I will direct my jealousy against you, that they may deal with you in fury. They shall cut off your noses and your ears, and your survivors shall fall by the sword. They shall seize your sons and your daughters, and your survivors shall be devoured by fire. They shall also strip you of your clothes and take away your beautiful jewels. Thus I will put an end to your lewdness and your whorings begun in the land of Egypt, so that you shall not lift up your eyes to them or remember Egypt anymore. That's going to be the first of four judgments that come, we read here. And so as we we develop this, one of the things, one of the, the biggest Issues we have here is a phrase that we're going to see repeated. It was repeated in chapter 22. It's going to be repeated here. It is, they had forgotten the Lord their God. They had forgotten the Lord. And so, thinking about that, I just you, you think about how you walk through a graveyard, you walk through a cemetery, and one of the, one of the common phrases that's stitched on that tombstone is going to say, gone, but not forgotten. Speaking of our loved ones, they're gone, they're not here, they don't exist, but they're not forgotten. But here, we kind of turn it on his head, here, God has been forgotten, but He's not gone. Right? Right? He's he's ever-present. So I just kind of stitched that at the top of my notes as a title, Forgotten but not gone, for those who like titles. (laughs) But anyway, if you, if you notice as we went through this, this language really uh, pictures what we'd call a military campaign. That's really what we see with all this going on. Now, which it's really detailed. I mean, this is historically accurate. You can just read about this in the Annals of History. You know, where Babylon comes and just destroys Jerusalem, sets it afire, leads away captives, just does some awful things to King Zedekiah, plucking his eyes out killing his children, killing his children in front of him first so that the last thing he ever saw with his eyes was the death of his children. Then they gouge out his eyes. Just cruel, cruel people. It says here in verse 25 that they shall cut off your nose and your ears. Now again, this is not. I think this is not necessarily talking about the mutilation of prisoners of war or men like... Zedekiah, as his eyes were were gouged out. This was more the punishment for an adulteress. You can read about this. This is what the Assyrians and the Babylonians would do to an adulterous woman. And actually, on the cover of a 2010 Time magazine, there's an 18-year-old Afghan woman who had her nose and her ears cut off. That was, what the, uh, was, was being, that was what was being sentenced by the Taliban commander. You know, she went to the Taliban court. She had ran away from her abusive husband. Surprise, surprise. You know, if he cut her ears off her nose, it's not like he was real loving. But anyway, she ran away from him. They caught her, brought her back, brought her to, in front of this Taliban court, and that was the sentence they levied on her. They held her down, cut off her nose, cut off her ear, left her in the woods to die, she survives, and um, I think she's had some plastic surgery and things, according to that magazine, to, to get back to what we would, would be recognizable. But it's just a brutal, it was brutal in, in, in their day, and there's still some men who have that brutality in them. And here it says in verse 27, that your lewdness and your whoring began in the land of Egypt. That's something that we've read about in the past. This is not something new. This is something that they left Egypt with those seeds in their heart. So this whoring that we're reading about here as she chases other lovers, this isn't a a one-time affair. It's not a momentary lapse of judgment. This is from the Exodus to Ezekiel. And from the Exodus... To Ezekiel covers a span of about eight hundred years, eight hundred years chasing other lovers and God is patient, God is long suffering throughout all this. so maybe I thought it may be decent or it may do us well to, to really consider this because we read this language where it says she played the horse, she played the horse, she played the horn on every high hill and every, under every green tree. She did not take her whoredom lightly. These are some language we read through Scripture. And when we read that, we all have a mental picture. Uh, and that mental picture probably is probably going to vary from person to person. It's going to vary from generation to generation, culture to culture. I bring this up because I remember my grandmother would say things back in her day. If you wore red lipstick and danced... You could, you could get that label of being a little bit promiscuous. Today, our generation, we're on the other end of that spectrum. I bring this up not to promote her, just to kind of throw out what could be spoken of here. A woman by the name of Kimberly Halsey has a record of, of sleeping with the most men in one day. This was a record she attempted to set. 620 men in an eight-hour period. 620 men. When you read about it, it says she once held the record. Once held the record. You know what that means? Somebody's one up her. So it proves the point that sin is never satisfied. Sin is never satisfied. Satisfied. So we have the spectrum. We have my my, my grandmother's definition, and then we have Miss Halsey on the other end. I say that because you know we may have we may have a little uh, I guess a little more innocent view of what the Lord's talking about here. But I think this is graphic, and I'm not trying I'm not trying to to shock us. Or, or to present us with some graphic content or to promote anything, I'm trying to establish that we need to come to grasp with the vileness of this sin. You cannot, you cannot overlook the love of God as He's, he's made a covenant with her, and He's still pursuing her, and she's this way. She's committing Horde them on every high hill and under every green tree. Much like Miss Halsey. You just cannot, cannot overestimate the love and patience of God. But anyway, he says, we'll read the next section, 28 through 34. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will deliver you into the hands of those you hate. Into the hands of those from whom you have turned in disgust, and they shall deal with you in hatred, and take away all of the fruit of your labor, and leave you naked and bare. And the nakedness of your whoring shall be uncovered, your lewdness and your whorings. You have brought this upon you because you played the whore with the nations and defiled yourself with their idols. You've gone, to, you've gone the way of your sister, therefore I will give you a, I will give her cup into your hand. Thus says the Lord God, You shall drink your sister's cup that is deep and large and you shall be laughed at and held in derision, derision for it contains much, and you'll be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, a cup of horror and desolation. The cup of your sister Samaria, you shall drink it and drain it out, and gnaw its shards and tear your breast, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. So look, you just read this and you see how the ones that are coming after them are the very ones that they pursued. The ones they pursued, the ones they lusted after, the ones that are now being the ones that kind of come on and attack them. Because he says here in verse 28, I will deliver you into the hands of those whom you hate, those whom they had lusted after. But I I thought about this because we we talk about relationships all the time. Relationships with God. It's it's common to hear, you need to have a relationship with God. But we all have a relationship with God. We're born enemies of God. That is a relationship. To be at enmity with God is a relationship. So what do we mean when we say you need to have a relationship with God? You know, often when we present Jesus, I'm afraid sometimes we present it in a transactional way. Like God can offer something you need, and He can. And it's really this back and forth, this transactional. That's the way most of our relationships work, in business or whatever. It's give and take. Maybe it's political alliances. That was common in their day. To, to marry into the family of a king or a prince of another country. It's political alliances, it's power, it's influence, even today. But God is not transactional. He's not. God is, is relational. And relational in a relationship, a relational relationship is this. It's, it's a love, a love that is willing to sacrifice even if you get nothing in return. So the point is, having your sins forgiven, spending eternity in the presence of God, that's just a bonus. The real prize, the real joy is having a relationship with God. We have to see that. No longer being an enemy of God. No longer treating God as a business partner. You know We're not, we're not following and loving the Lord because of what He does for us. That's transactional. That's getting something in return. It's just having that relationship, enjoying Him forever, to know God, and to enjoy Him forever. I think Blake quotes that catechism quite often. But not so with Judah. Judah here, Jerusalem, Ahalba here, her relationships, they weren't for love. They were lust-based relationships. It was all transactional What can I get? Never any love, only lust on both sides. And when it's over, there's hatred. When it's over, there's disgust, as we read here. And it's on to the next one. So we read in verse 31, Therefore I will give her cup into your hand, the cup of judgment that Samaria or Ahala had drank. Now that same cup was being given to Ahalaba. The same sin, the same judgment. The fact that they had the temple, the priest, the Davidic king made no difference. We're justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Okay? So do not make the mistake Judah made here and trust in ancillary objects, ancillary uh, items. You know, having religious stuff and going through religious motions, it's worthless. It's it's worthless. And the Lord will point this out very plainly in verse 38, so just just hang tight on that one. Then we get to verse 35. Let's just read it kind of on its own there. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Because you have forgotten me and cast me behind your back, you yourself must bear the consequences of your lewdness and your whorings. This is where I kind of robbed that title from I told you about earlier. But it says here in verse 35, we can read it in Ezekiel 22 verse 12. There it says, But me you have forgotten, declares the Lord God. We read about this in Jeremiah. Jeremiah, again a contemporary of Ezekiel, is saying the same thing. Jeremiah 2 verse 32 Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. So they had forgotten God. But he's not gone, right? Not gone but not the gone but not forgotten. Forgotten but not gone. And it's reiterated time after time after time that they had forgotten Yahweh. And here we see that They've forgotten him, and so God is going to... They've forgotten him, they've cast him behind their back, they try to put him out of their mind, and now they're going to bear the consequences of their lewdness and their whoring. They had removed him from their thoughts, much like that Romans 3 passage where it says, there there is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no fear of God before their eyes because they put him behind their back and they just don't, don't think about him. And that illusion that God is absent gives way to their chasing after their lust, chasing after all the desires of their heart. So we move in verses 36 through 38. The Lord said to me, Son of man, will you judge Ahala and Ahalaba? Declare to them their abominations, for they have committed adultery, and blood is on their hands. With their idols they have committed adultery, and they have even offered up to them for food, I'm, let me back up. All right, with their idols they have committed adultery, and they have even offered up to them for food the children whom they had borne to me. Moreover, this they have done to me. They have defiled my sanctuary on the same day and profaned my Sabbath. Let's pause right there. So here, you see this, really it's almost like a courtroom more of a legal charge is being levied against The the people here, Ahala and Ahalba, Samaria and Jerusalem, Samaria and Judah. But the symbolism, the the whoredom and all that symbolism, it's going to kind of be removed here. And he's going to speak to them directly, and he's going to speak to them literally. And he lists these charges. The charges are, as it says here, going to be against Ahala and Right? That's the northern and the southern kingdom. See, it says that in verse Thirty-six. The Lord said to me, Son of man, will you judge Ahala and Ahalba? Will you judge Samaria and Judah? He's, he's combining them here in judgment. The Lord lays down these charges. Their idol worship, number one, spiritual idolatry. They were unfaithful to their covenant. That's being what's being said here. With their idols, they have committed adultery. They've even offered up for them food. They've even offered to them for food the children whom they have borne to me. So this is violence to the most vulnerable. This is violence to the most defenseless children. Ezekiel 16 kind of spoke on this same line of, same line of thought here. It says, Ezekiel 16, 20, reads this way. And you took your sons and your daughters whom you have borne to me and there you sacrificed them to to be devoured. There you sacrificed them to be devoured. Were your whoring so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up for an offering by fire to them being the idols? So they had offered up their children to these foreign gods, to these idols, to these worthless gods. And he acts like they act like it's no big deal. Just... Verse 38 says they defiled. These are still, these are still charges. One, they're idol worship, they're spiritual idolatry, they're unfaithful to their covenant. Two, they're violent to those who are most vulnerable. Three, they defiled my sanctuary. That's verse 38. The fourth one is they profane my Sabbaths. Those are the four charges he he brings out right here in this little setting. But one thing that's interesting, in verse 38, it says, they have defiled my sanctuary. They've defiled the temple is what he's saying. But look, how did the northern kingdom, Samaria, how did they defile the sanctuary? Remember, God is laying this charge at the feet of, of both of them, of both Samaria and Judah. So how did Samaria do that? Samaria had broken away. Samaria had built their own temple, had their own gods, their own priests, their own altar. So how did they defile the sanctuary here in Jerusalem? Well, maybe they defiled it by rejecting it. They defiled it by rejecting it. And so look, this is interesting. To me, the Lord has grouped those who reject His sanctuary and those who enter into it with some kind of monotonous exercise, just a religious, you know, a religious box checking, just simply checking the box. He's, he's grouped these two together. So just coming into the temple of God, going through the motions, checking a box, and actually defiling it and having nothing to do with it, He's put them in the same category. They're defiling His temple. They're defiling His sanctuary. And just to show you how ho-hum their worship had gotten, look in verse 39. "For For when they had slaughtered their children in sacrifice to their idols, on the same day they came into my sanctuary to profane it. And behold, this is what they did to my house shamelessly this this shamelessly hypocritically they come and present themselves as true worshipers of God on the same day that they sacrifice their children to idols they go to the sanctuary of God to worship ah uh, just looking around, it may be something that kind of mirrors that, that we can kind of lay eyes on. It's it's hard to not think about abortion because that is slaughtering the unborn. That is slaughtering those who are, are, are most vulnerable among us, the most defenseless. And there was a guy, he was, he was one of only three clinics in the United States that offered what he called um, late-term abortions. He would offer them where they were way past 26 weeks, according to him, his own words. He would do it over and over and over again, and yet this man was a... He served in his church. He didn't just go to church. He, he, he served in his local church. Attending church, serving church, going back, slaughtering the unborn. On the same day, I doubt that. He may have done it on Wednesday night, maybe. So, here we go. Let's, let's move on to verse 40. They even, sent for oil, they even sent for men to come from afar to whom a messenger was sent. And behold, they came. For them you bathed yourself, you painted your eyes, adorned yourself with ornaments. You sat on a stately couch with a table spread before it on which you had placed my incense and my oil. The sound of carefree multitude was with her, and the men of the common sort, drunkards, were brought from the wilderness, and they put bracelets On the hands of the women and beautiful crowns on their heads. The the way the Lord says in verse forty, they even sent. They even they even sent for men to come from afar. They sent messengers to bring ambassadors back. A lot of times we read about from from Egypt, from afar. They rolled out the red carpet the way this looks. They, they dolled themselves up. They had this feast they rolled out the red carpet. They wined and they dined them. And they did this with what the Lord says, my oil, my incense, things that was meant to worship me. You're lavishing on all these other gods who are no gods. It says they have a carefree multitude what it says in verse 42, the sound of a carefree multitude was with her. Everyone was having a good time, you know. They were oddly comfortable in this wicked setting. They had pushed God so far out of their mind that this this setting really didn't didn't make them feel uneasy, not, not the least bit. Their rebellion had hardened their hearts to a point that they were just carefree. I actually thought about Jeremiah 42. If you want to turn there, just real quick, there's a, this, it, it, it kind of drives home what's being, what we're reading here. Jeremiah 42. Right, so here, it says the people that all the commanders of the forces, verse 1, and Jehoanan, the son of Korea, Jezaniah, the son of Hosiah and all the people from the least to the greatest came near and said to Jeremiah the prophet, Let our plea for mercy come before you and pray to the Lord your God for us, for all this remnant, because we are left with but a few, as your eyes see us, that the Lord your God may show us the way that we may go. And the thing that we should do, Jeremiah the prophet said, I, w- I have heard you, behold, I will pray ...to the Lord your God according to your request, and whatever the Lord answers, I will tell you. I will keep nothing back from you. Then they said to Jeremiah, May the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act according to all the word with which the Lord your God sends you to us. Whether it's good or bad, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God to whom we are sending you, that it may be well with us, when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. At the end of ten days, verse 7, at the end of ten days, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, then he summoned them, he summoned all the commanders and the forces who were with him, all the people from the least to the greatest, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your plea for mercy before him, if you will remain in this land, then I will build you up and not pull you down. I will plant you and not pluck you up. For I For I relent of the disaster that I did to you. Do not fear the king of Babylon. So you you see, this is the answer. They asked Jeremiah to go get an answer. Jeremiah comes back. This is the answer that they said they would do. Look over in chapter 43, just for time's sake. When Jeremiah finished speaking to all the people, all the words of the Lord their God, with with which the Lord their God had sent him to them, Azariah, the son of Hoshiah, Johanan, the son of... Hariah and all the insolent men said to Jeremiah, You are telling a lie. The Lord your God did not send you to say, Do not go to Egypt to live there. You see exactly what they wanted to do. They wanted to go to Egypt. They just wanted Jeremiah to tell them God said it was okay. So they said, Jeremiah, go, go plead for us to Jeremiah. I mean, to, to the Lord. Whatever the Lord says, we'll do. Whether good, whether bad. Jeremiah comes back and says, God says, don't go to Egypt. Stay here. And he will, not, he will build you up and not pluck you down or not tear you down. You're lying, Jeremiah. See, they just would not listen to the prophets. Would not listen. So that, that's, this, is the kind of, this is the field we're at right here. They just would not listen no matter what Ezekiel told them, Jeremiah told them. They would not hear the Word of God. They had these carefree minds. They had put God behind them. He was out of their mind. He had been forgotten. Verses 43 and 45. Let's read verses 43 through 45. Then I said of her who was worn out by adultery, now they will continue to use her for a whore, even her. For they have gone into her as men go into a prostitute. Thus they went into a and into a holaba, lewd women. But righteous men shall pass judgment on them, with the sentence of an adulteress and with the sentence of a woman of women who shed blood because they are adulteresses and the blood is on their hands look verse 43 where it has this talk about her was worn out by adultery now they will continue to use her for whore even her some translation the new american standard actually has this as a question it says then I said concerning her, who was worn out by adultery, will they now commit adultery with her when she is like this? You know, they form it in the, in the, in the form of a question, or they have it in the form of a question there. So the, the way the New American Standard, the Legacy, and several other translations, what they're saying is, will the foreign nations enter into an alliance with her when she's wore out, when her beauty and her splendor is gone? I think this is what's being taught. Since God has judged Israel collectively, sending her into Babylon, she's never attained to the splendor of her youth. Never. Even today, when people talk about Israel, they'll say things like, what's so special about her? All this pro-Israel policy. She's worn out. There's no one who wants to enter into an alliance with her. You see, one day the people of Israel will seek the Lord their God and they will need no other. It's common to hear Israel needs America, but Israel does not need America. Israel needs the Lord, Amen. and that's it. America needs Israel in that sense. So I think that's what's being taught. She's going to be old and worn out and maybe, maybe disfigured some from, from her idolatrous. Past her horror, her playing the whore for so so many years, and so not, she has nothing to offer to these foreign powers. Let's finish this chapter, verse forty six. For thus says the Lord God, bring up a vast host against them and make them an object of terror, and a an object of terror and of plunder, and the host shall stone them and cut them down with their swords. They shall kill their sons and their daughters, and burn up their houses. Thus will I put an end to their lewdness in the land, that all the women may take warning, and not commit lewdness as you've done. And they shall return your lewdness upon you, and you shall bear the penalty for your sinful idolatry. And you shall know that I am the Lord God. So judgment comes to Judah, to Jerusalem, just like the Lord has said it would, just like He had been warning them through the mouth of the prophets for centuries. Judgment comes and it will not be pleasant. So, as we wrap up this chapter, you know, we, there's a verse in the New Testament, it's in 1 Corinthians 10, where it said, These things happened to them as an example to us. What is written down is for our instruction. So, uh, that that begs the question, what can we learn from a passage like this? What can we learn from a a chapter like this? One is we can learn that God sees through hypocrisy. You know, they may go through the motions. They may check the boxes. They, They were going and slaughtering their kids to the god Molech or whatever, and then coming and worshiping Yahweh on the same exact day. God sees through that. You may fool man, but God will not be played the fool. Maybe pushing God to the back of your mind, as these people here were guilty of doing. Pushing God to the back of your mind, it may lead to um, uh, an ease. It may re- lead to a numbness of the things of God. So, so staying in the Word, staying among brothers and sisters in Christ, reading, praying, those things keeps God at the forefront of your mind. Never get too far from that. Or how about this? We read it in Jeremiah we see it here. They were constantly trying to, to lure all these foreign alliances, all these foreign powers. And what they were doing is they were looking for government to save them. They were looking for government to tend to their needs, to provide for them, to protect them. The answer is always government. Government. we just got to get affiliated with the right party in the White House. Look, our answer is not in Washington. Our answer is found in a beaten, bloody Savior as He hung on the cross to pay the full price for the sins of His sheep. And there is no two-tiered justice system with God. Sin must be paid for. A Is paying for her sins, just like the example she had of her sister Samaria, her sister Ahala, before that. We see it. We read it. We have to learn from it. We we, we must do better. Sin will be paid for. It's either paid for on that cross at Calvary, or you will pay for your sins, just like these people here, and it will not be pleasant, and it will not be swift. Again, we must also keep in mind that God knows our hearts. He knows it. I mean, we can, we can come here, we can play the part, we can walk the walk, talk the talk. But He knows our hearts, and, and these men probably would have got um, voted on many school boards, <laughs> you know. They probably would have been fairly high up in society, but God knows their hearts. And He knows ours as well. And so we need to pray that the Lord will give us a new nature, a new heart, a new desire to to, to follow Him, to be around His people, and to just cherish His Word and just learn what we can from it so that we can be a better Christian, a better example, and just a better ambassador for Jesus Christ. If you would, please stand.